to Rewilding Work. I'm Paul Miller, and in my day job, I'm Chief Creative Officer of the Digital Workplace Group. I spend a lot of time talking to senior change makers inside hundreds of mostly large organizations like Adobe, IKEA, Coca Cola about their challenges and their visions of creating a more engaging, fulfilling, and healthier ways of working for often hundreds of thousands of people. In these Rewilding Work episodes, I talk to senior leaders who are transforming the world of work in their companies and public organisations. The series is based on the book Nature of Work, The New Story of Work for a Living Age, which I co-authored with Shimrit James. Its core idea is that you're not an organisation, you're an organism. You're not a machine, you're a living system. More like a forest than a factory. So what does this mean in practice? Well, we hear examples and stories of what key senior leaders are doing to bring the nature of work to life in their company. And if they can do it, then you can do it too. Today, I talked to Petra de Bruxelles. Petra is the Diversity and Inclusion Advisor for the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. And after the interview, I'm joined in the studio by my special guests, Nicola Millard from BT and Shimreet James from DWG to reflect on what we've heard. Now for Petra. Let's start off. Um, How did you come to be responsible for diversity, equity and inclusion at the IMF? And is there a personal story behind this for you? Thanks, Paul, for inviting me to to this this chat of the Rewilding Work discussion series, and, and I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, if I could just first, before we get into answering the questions, if I could just first emphasize that the views I'm expressing during the session are mine and should not be attributed to the International Monetary Fund, its executive direct board, or, or its management. But yes, I think to answer your question, uh, definitely um, there is a personal story. Um, my, my life experiences since childhood, I think, have really led to me having this type of role. I moved with my family from a very young age and I've lived in countries spanning Europe, North America, the Far East. So I've had to learn to adapt, uh, but also, you know, obviously learn different languages, adapt to different cultures, but also try to keep my individuality in all of that. So I think that really that upbringing led me to um, the work environments, which uh, I've been working in in international organizations or uh, pan-European organizations. I think that that has been really a journey that that has set me up for 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 working in these organizations. Uh, now, in the, on top of that, you know, I I think that I first became uh, aware of diversity when I started working for a European financial entity about twenty five years ago. And uh, I was in recruitment at the time, and I found it fascinating that there was a lack of women applying for positions in, in, the, in this bank where I was working. And also that yeah. we tended to get a glut of uh, applications from certain countries and not from others. And so I think that's where my interest in what's going on here, why are we getting different types of applications, was, was really peaked. 
And then I started talking to people through uh, interviews, but also um, as a business partner, I started talking to people about their experiences. And I think that's where I became a lot more aware about the inclusion part of the DEI work. And that really led me to thinking this is something I'd like to invest more time in. And in 2014, it just so happens that I was looking for a new challenge, wanted to stay in the in the organization where I was working, but we were the HR department was going through a huge reorganization. Uh, and I went to my boss and I said, listen, I'm looking for something new. And I think that we need to do work on attracting more diverse candidates. Now, my intention behind that was to just really work on the branding side of things. Mm. But I was then asked to develop a DNI strategy. Uh, and so that's where I really, really got into the nitty gritty and the hard work of, of DEI at the time. Mm. And then in terms of the, the IMF, I, I, you know, I saw the role uh, and I thought it would be interesting. Uh, and I decided to put myself forward. And here I am. Mm. That's that's that, that's great, and it's always fascinating. To I mean, I've spoken to uh, several people who are involved in in the DEI field and the evolution of this still pretty new area, and it's fascinating to hear the stories. So the IMF, and I've been fortunate to visit a few times. One of the things I always love is it's a it's an intrinsically multicultural and global organization, but I know that. You've been aware in the IMF of what you call underrepresented regions. So what, what does that mean? Because when I am in the IMF and maybe I'm unaware of what I'm not seeing, what, what does that mean, the underrepresented regions for you? Right. So indeed, I mean, we are extremely diverse. You know, we are, we represent 190 member countries. And in fact, from the beginning, so in what we call our articles of agreement, which are basically the IMF's charter and operating, um, setting out our mission, but also our operating standards, there is clear reference in those articles of agreement that we need to pay regard to the importance of recruiting personnel, it was called at the time, but if you like, employees on as wide a ge geographical basis as possible, so that our member countries were, were, were represented. Now, when uh, a country joins the, the fund or the, the IMF, they uh, contribute um, money. So this is where we get our, our, our funding from, if you like. And so they, they pay in a certain amount of capital or they reserve a certain amount of capital for uh, the, the fund's use. And that's called the quota share. This is used for both um, in terms of, of identifying their, their or defining their contribution, but also their voting rights within the, within the organization. And so those are one input that we use. This quota share is one input that we use to look at whether we have fair representation. But the other thing that we look at is also the what we call the intensity of the work that we do. So how much work do we do in a particular group of, of countries, which we call regions? Um, and so by looking, combining both of those, we then come up with a percentage. And then we look at our data and we see whether the percentage of employees from a certain region, and, and you know, we have Europe, Western Hemisphere, East Asia, MENA, Middle East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and we look at, at whether the representation of, of employees from that region is 
mm, roughly similar to the quota share plus the intensity of the of the, mm. the business that we do. The more important for us is actually the intensity of business that we do. So we have set these regions and we have three underrepresented regions at the moment. One is sub-Saharan Africa because that's where we do a lot of our business. It's a developing continent. Mm. The other is Middle East and North Africa and the other one is, is East Asia. Although for East mm. Asia, we are um, we are making steady progress. Okay. Okay. And, and and how does your sponsorship program work? Because it sounds like that's been very carefully thought through, which is kind of what I would expect from the IMF. But what does that mean? Well, well thanks for the, for the question, the compliment. You know, I mean, the sponsorship program was is actually relatively new. We're in in a pilot phase at the moment, um, and we actually set it up following feedback that we receive from colleagues from uh, these underrepresented regions where they felt that they didn't have the same networks, the same role models and access to developmental or growth assignments that others in the organization might have. So um, in response to that, um, we looked at different options. We looked at coaching, we looked at mentoring, but both of those types of things either exist or, or have been tried in the fund before. So we wanted to come up with something new. And so we developed the, the, the sponsorship program where we've paired some of our most senior leaders um, who actually volunteered to act as sponsors, which was fantastic, with uh, employees who have been evaluated as being solid performers and um, who aspire to become uh, future leaders in the organization. So we provided training for both groups, particularly on the difference between mentoring, coaching, and sponsoring just to make sure that they were all starting from, if you like, the same page and the same basis of understanding. And then we, we, um, we've held training sessions also or, or um, meetings with both groups to sort of answer their questions, but also to provide them more input. So for the, what we call the, those who are being sponsored, the participants, you know, they, they've had, um, we've had speakers come in who talk to them about their sphere of influence, career counseling and, and other topics. And I'm pleased to say that, you know, we, we've now reached the one year mark of this, uh, of this sponsor the pilot program, the initial pilot program. And um, the feedback has been very positive. So some of the sponsors have even said that it's, they feel that it's made them more inclusive and actually better mm. uh, managers than, than leaders themselves. So they've actually learned themselves, they've improved their leadership skills. And for the participants or those who are being sponsored, you know, although we did say that the ultimate aim is not necessarily to get a promotion, we have heard that some of the participants that have that have been in the, the, this initial pilot, they have been promoted. And one of the, the positive aspects, if you like, that came up during their interviews was what the, the knowledge they, that they gained um, through the, the sponsorship program. So it seems to be working. Now, it's been so successful and we had so many people interested that we're actually launching a, what we're calling a beta pilot uh, in the in the coming months, and then the intention is to roll it out um, to the whole um, fund because obviously we don't want to be exclusive, uh, which the sure, program sure. is in some ways at the moment. We'll roll that out hopefully um, in 2024 or 2025. That sounds that sounds great. And and meaning you talked a bit about the benefits that some of the sponsors have found from this or the things that they've learned. I mean, how do what I'll call the the better represented groups in the IMF? gain from a 
broader approach to diversity? And do you have any specific examples of the benefits? Yeah, well, let me first say, you know, I think that we actually gain those of us who are in the, as you call them, well-represented groups, and I have to count myself amongst those, right? I would argue that we actually gain more from an inclusive and an equitable work environment rather than diversity itself. Mm. Um, because you can have diversity, and, and by its nature, as you mentioned, Paul, mm. the IMF is diverse. It has yeah. to be. But if we're not inclusive and, and, and our employees don't have a sense of belonging and that they're being treated equitably, then the diversity doesn't work, right? So I think it's more important that we focus on the inclusion and the equitable work environment. But to answer your question more concretely, and, and this is not necessarily specific to the IMF, I think it, it's more general and from my my overall experience with DNI. I think one of the best, some of the examples that, that I can give are, you know, when you make accommodations for people with disabilities, for example, you know, think just of something simple like a push button or a, 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 a motion sensor door opener. Now, a lot of organizations or companies put those in place for people who are using wheelchairs or, you know, uh, but they can actually be beneficial to everyone because if you have to, if you broken your leg and you're temporarily using crutches it also helps you to open the doors etc if you're carrying a heavy load of documents or or whatever you know you can just tap the button and the door opens for you not having to struggle with the the you know potential of losing your door or the the documents falling or whatever hmm. equally you know our catering staff who have to um provide food and things they have trolleys, so they can just open the door with a button or, or by, by um, you know, flashing. Mm. So I think it's, it's, it's really, you know, from my perspective, if you have what I would call an accessible and inclusive environment for all, everybody mm. benefits from it. You know, we are in an international organization. Not everybody has uh, English as their mother tongue. So mm. we've actually introduced captioning for all of our meetings. And that helps not only those who are hard of hearing, but but also those who, who perhaps I speak quite quickly. Others mm. have very difficult accents. It helps those who are not native mm. English speakers to follow the conversation more easily as well. Yeah, I mean, and... and- you know, rewilding work grew out of the the book that Shimri James and I wrote called Nature of Work, uh, which I know you're familiar with. And it strikes me that an inclusive, more equitable organisation, as you called it, is is an intrinsically healthier organisation. That, as you say, it's it's almost a way of better listening to the reality of the organization. And that's what, what kind of comes across to me. I really like what you said about the fact that, you know, diversity is is one aspect of it, but it's the equity, the inclusion. And I know at LinkedIn, they talk about belonging, creating a sense of belonging in the organization. So my final question to you is, I mean, we are in a hybrid working environment, and I know that the IMF is is using adopting that at the moment has that been better or worse from a, a DE&I point of view w- would you say well i would hope to say that it's it's better but i think it's it's a tough uh question for us to answer 
at the moment because we've only been in hybrid for about six months. Mm. Uh, now we have just conducted a survey and I'm eagerly awaiting those those results. Uh, I mm. should receive them. Unfortunately, I was hoping to have them for today, but they've not come through yet. But we certainly know from colleagues and from listening to colleagues that they really appreciate the flexibility. Now there are concerns around proximity bias. You know, um, is my manager going to evaluate the work that I'm doing based on the deliverables uh, and my performance, or are they going to evaluate it because they see me in the office? Uh, and one of the mitigating um, actions that we've put in there is to say to managers, listen, you have to role model um, the hybrid working. So you shouldn't be in the office every day. And when you are doing your hybrid working, make sure that you actually come in on different days so that if there is a pattern of presence, you're not seeing the same people all the time. We do know that most people prefer to come in on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays uh, that we, we've got from, from some statistics that yeah. we've run. But um, I think that overall, like I said, our employees are certainly um, appreciating the, the flexibility but I've also discussed with um, some of the um, colleagues with disabilities and other minority groups, and they've shared that, you know, hybrid working provides them with, first of all, a lot more flexibility, but mm -hmm. also that they don't need necessarily the types of accommodations that, that at home that they would need in the office because they're already set up at home. Yeah. Um, and then there are other groups who cite that, you know, they feel that they can more easily be themselves while they're working from home rather than in the office. Um, you know, and this can be, for, you know, for various reasons. Some of it may be related to their sense of, of, of you know, of that there's bias in the organization. And, you know, every organization has that. So I'm not mm. really revealing anything you know, sure. dramatically negative, but, you know, they, they just feel that they can be, be more easily be themselves. Um, and to be honest, you know, I, I feel that myself sometimes as well. I mean, I'm wearing a suit today, I'm in the office, mm. but you know, there are days when I think, oh, I really could do, I really would not like to dress up. And, and if I'm at home, actually, it's mm. more accepted that you're not perhaps so smartly dressed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I was talking to a colleague yesterday and um, I said, are you using your, the co-working space she usually goes to? And um, she said, well, not at the moment. She said, it's so cold. I just want to be kind of snuggled up and I don't want to dress up and have to go to somewhere. And I think it is. it does give us more options, which I think from a, an inclusion point of view, and an equity point of view is, is positive. But thank you so much for uh, for sharing your your insights today, Petra. It's been a pleasure to um, to ch to talk to you. And thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. So that was really fascinating to watch, and I'm delighted now to be joined in the studio by our two guests for today. That's Dr. Nicola Millard, who is a Principal Innovation Partner at BT, and also by Shimreet James, who is the Director of Knowledge for the Digital Workplace Group and also responsible for the diversity, equity and inclusion work in DWG. So it's it's great to have you both here. And, and Nicola, can I, can I just start off by asking you, what, what are your reflections on what Petra was was talking about. 
I think there's three things that leapt out to me. The first thing I loved was the fact that they recruit their employees to mirror their customers, if you can call the IMF customers customers. But um, the fact that, you know, they're trying to represent their, their population as a whole, I think is something that all employers should do. Uh, obviously, in IT, the big problem at the moment is we don't have enough women. And given women, I think they're about 51% of the population. They're about 20% of the IT developers population. Um, that, that's a real tough task sometimes to just recruit uh, in, in your customer's image. So I think that's, that's the first thing I really kind of uh, pulled out. I think the second thing was really around that whole concept of design. Now, obviously, Petra pulled out things like um, designing doors, but I think it's more than that sort of material design. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff around uh, you know, uh, inclusion and, and office design and making sure that offices are accessible. But I think it goes way beyond that to make work accessible. Um, I think we've got a kind of an exciting time at the moment because I've maintained that um, we have an opportunity to reinvent work um, and reinvent work for, for people, for productivity and also the planet. But in terms of, of, of the people bit, it really is around how do we generate inclusive design in the workplace, not just in the physical workplace, but across the board. And, you know, reflecting on, on a lot of the stuff around the future of work, you have to kind of look at the past as well. And, and the, the sort of the way work's constructed was constructed back in the industrial era when we had factories and nine to five and Monday to Friday made a lot of sense. And actually, if you look at the, the ways that jobs have been designed, largely it was factory workers that they were designing it for in an era where a lot of women were doing the caring so they were often staying at home so that whole nine to five monday to friday kind of made sense when you know you had a carer to take care of the children at home and you know the man went to work when all of us are juggling caring now um it's it's a real difficulty to say well is that the right pattern so i think we need to to move that mindset from physical uh, inclusion to let's look at how we make work much more inclusive which of course is a subject of hot topic at the moment around getting the over 50s back um, into the workforce for a start. So if we're going to do that, how do we construct work to make it attractive for the over 50s to come back to work and who might not want to do Monday to Friday, nine to five or do long commutes, uh, but having credible knowledge, you know, um, how do we get that, that kind of person back into the workforce by really mm -hmm. designing work differently? And then the third thing I, I loved about uh, what Petra said was it was really that sort of a mentoring and coaching approach where you had, uh, you know, the top level leaders mentored by by high performers that were maybe lower down in the organization. And I think we've seen a lot of that around. Again, it's it's back to being aware that you know you may have one perspective but other per perspectives are available so mm. how do we actually make sure that people from diverse perspectives whether that's at the top or the bottom of the organization whether that's you know carers different ethnicities parents different cultures that's the other lovely thing about the imf it's a mm. really multicultural organization um all of that gives a much richer perspective when you're starting to look at how do you how do you design work and how do you design services that customers want to uh, to uh, to actually consume as well so all of that i really loved mm. that's that's a great synthesis nicola and and um uh, and shimrit it, it struck me as it always does with the imf that it's a very polished organization and i'm not surprised that they've got what i would call a carefully considered approach to diversity, equity and inclusion. But but Petra focused more, I thought, on, on inclusion, which was interesting. Um, what, what do you think about that, that emphasis? 
It was really interesting listening because um, I think she did focus on inclusion and equity, but she made a real point to say we're able to do that because we're already diverse. Mm. We already have diversity, although she also spotlighted that there are areas that are underrepresented. She mentioned, I think, three different regions um, where they're having to put more work into because it's not reflective of um, their wider population. So where they lack in diversity, they are fo- they are, are focusing. And then once you have that, you then look at, okay, how are we being inclusive? Um, I remember listening to somebody speak from Glassdoor a couple of years ago, I think, who was sharing their framework for DEI within Glassdoor that they'd developed. And they said it's all well and good having a diverse population with people from all walks of life. However you want to take that, that could be disability, gender, sexuality, class, um, all sorts, cognitive diversity. But if you don't have an inclusive culture, people are going to leave. They're not going to stay. You're not going to remain diverse. And so what is the culture that you're creating once you're inside of the organization so that people feel like they belong? And so for Petra to be talking about the things that they're doing inside of IMF to make sure that that diversity is maintained uh, felt absolutely right for them. Um, I think when you look at different organizations that maybe aren't as diverse, you then need to be looking as well at more deeply what is our recruitment policy? Are we mitigating for unconscious bias in the way that we're recruiting, for example? Um, if you're able to recruit in a diverse way, but people are leaving, why is that? So I think that focus on inclusion was really important. Uh, it takes all three. That's why we're seeing those extra initials being added. So we started with diversity, then we had diversity and inclusion. We now have equity added to that as well, because things need to be fair. You look at the gender pay gap, you look at um, the employment pay gap for disabled people, for example. And that's why we now talk about equity as well. I think you need to have all three. If you've got one where you feel like you're naturally more focused on just because of the nature of your work, you can also then put a bigger focus on inclusivity. Um, so I think it made sense for their for their context. And it's a good reminder that you need to focus on all three. And that kind of fosters that sense of belonging. Yeah. And I, I, and I it's it's definitely a, a, a subject, if I can call it that, where I feel like I mainly just listen. Because I, I I really feel that and 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 I've I've found myself absorbing new information, trying to understand, um, without trying to have very defined sort of opinions in in the subject. But it strikes me, Nicola, that this subject of inclusion that if you feel included, if you feel heard, if you feel valued anywhere. That, that that really makes a difference. And I, I, I know that it's not your particular area, Nicola, within BT, but, but how would you say BT is as an organisation in this area, um, either compared with the IMF or just in your own experience? I think there's a few things. So I'm a designer, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to cover design in a minute. But, um, but I think in terms of sort of um, the stuff that, BT's been doing, which is reflected in other organisations that I work with as well. Um, we've got things like colleague boards, uh, a colleague board. So um, that's basically a, a, a board, a shadow board, I guess, that we've recruited across the organisation and they've tried to make it very diverse. Um, and they basically advise our main board. Um, uh, and the, the main board is less diverse, let's put, let's put it that way, than that, than that, that, uh, that colleague board. So I think 
in terms of sort of getting different voices heard, I think I think that that definitely helps. And and actually, BT also has a rich network of networks. Um, so, for mm. example, our Able to network um, uh, comprises um, everyone from disabilities right the way through to the neurodiverse, and they're involved in the design bit and. The design bit is what I'm always very interested in, because I think if you're looking at hybrid working, which I do a lot, um, it's quite tempting to sort of say, well, hi hybrid working, some, some of the definitions of the flexibility within hybrid working are actually inflexible, flexible. So you must be in three days a week, for example, being a very common one amongst a lot of organizations. Mm. Um, my problem there is you, you end up designing for the average. And I understand that. I, I used to do a lot on ergonomics, for example, and, and ergonomics is all about designing for the average. And Unfortunately, the average, I think, is five foot seven and a half for a start. So I'm five foot three and a half. Um, uh, and the problem then is I, I don't fit chairs. I mean, I cannot find a chair that fits me because it's been designed for the average. And I think then when you're looking at the complex chairs that you can adjust, you've got lots of levers and dials and things that that's very complicated. It's less it, it, you're increasing the complexity by some degree if you suddenly give lots and lots of choices. And I think if that design, that chair design is almost reflected in, in the hybrid working that we're doing at the moment in that it's very simple to just say, OK, let's let's say three days a week in the office, two days a week at home. But then when you start putting the dials and knobs on, it gets a lot more um, uh, complex and the trouble is not everyone wants to work three days a work, days a week in the office for many, many reasons. If you're they're neurodiverse, all of the stimulation of the office is probably going to destroy productivity. And actually, they're probably better better set up at home. If, if you've um, got disabilities, the commute could be problematic for you or that simply it's just the work doesn't necessarily work within an office scenario. Um, so I think uh, we've got this interesting period at the moment of experimentation, which we're all talking about, but it is really around what levers and dials do we need and how do we make that not so complex that that you have a chair that looks like a monstrosity or simply nobody can use that chair. Mm. So I think that that's an interesting dilemma that it's interesting that sometimes we're designing for the average and no one is average. And it, it mainly just doesn't fit anybody at that point. Yeah. And, and, and Shimri, um, I mean, large organizations from the conversations I have um, are on a, let's say they're on a journey in this area of DEI. From where you're sitting, how would you say they're doing? I mean, and, and I don't really have a kind of clear kind of answer to that question. I mean, are they are they doing quite well? Are they, is it sort of average? Is it disappointing? Where, I mean, where are we up to? Because the corporate world's definitely trying to change, or at least saying it's trying to change. I also just want to empathise with Nicola. I'm five foot three, so... There's no such thing as a normal user is what Lou Downs says in, uh, in <laughs> services. <laughs> Who are we designing for? Um, in terms of your question, Paul, I think, uh, first of all, it's not just large organizations that are trying to do this. Like DWG, we're, we're quite small and we are focused on this as well. Um, I think the challenges are sometimes just slightly different depending on the size of the organization. Um, I think it's been a long time coming I, there's been obviously events, particularly in the US, that are tragic. There's been um, an increased focus on it here in the UK for various reasons as well. Different countries and regions have their own particular um, challenges when it comes to DEI that they need to focus on. You can't take a US approach and drop it into another country, for example. But I think the fact that they that large organizations are focused on this is fantastic. I don't want to pass judgment at all on where people are in that journey. 
Um, you know, we had a research spotlight for our members last year where we were showcasing some uh, work around the inclusive digital workplace that we've just published that I was working on. And we said in that that the boundaries of an organization are permeable. You don't live in a bubble away from society. And so what's happening inside of organizations is reflecting what's happening within wider society and kind of the, the pressures of that and how organizations need to change. And I think as well, there's a, a real opportunity for organizations to, to kind of be the utopia that they want to see externally. If you have organizations saying this is how we want to see our society and we're going to show it through our DEI work, there's a real opportunity there to have to kind of be a microcosm of society. That said, uh, in quite a few of the DEI practitioners that I follow, particularly on LinkedIn, you're starting to see real frustration that progress isn't being made at the speed at which we would really like and so I think without saying things are as good as they could be or they could be better or things aren't you know we're disappointed I think there's we really need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in this area and look at that um you were saying you know for example you're sitting back and just trying to listen and you're not it's everybody has a role to play and just sit even if that is just sitting back and listening and giving the stage to other people and then taking on your role as an ally and saying okay what can I be doing in my role so I think regardless of your the size of your organization um there's a thing that I've kept coming across in this uh, in the realm of accessibility which is progress over perfection mm. I think that needs to be the the big message yeah and I think we're probably in the period where you know there's there's a kind of burst of energy there's a burst of activity programs are started people are appointed and now it's kind of the hard yards you know it's 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 staying true to your uh, purpose, to your mission, trying to, I, I think you're right. I think the world of work has been a kind of engine of social change, is got the capability to be. I mean, we haven't seen the, the rise of populism in in the world of large organisations. We, I think a lot of their values are very, across different organisations, are, are very, very similar. Love to talk to you more, but thank you so much for for coming on. And um, I think this is all part of rewilding work. Uh, I'm sure it is. And and thank you, Nicola, and thank you, Shimri, for your contributions today. Thank you. So here are my three seeds to plant in your organisation, based on the conversations with Petra, with Nicola, and with Shimri. Just to kind of say before I get into the three seeds to plant, I'm really in listening mode with diversity, equity and inclusion and have been for the last few years. So I come at this trying to absorb what I'm hearing. So my first seed is that diversity comes first. But if you don't also have inclusion, then people will leave. Seems to make sense that if you just have a diverse organisation, like Shimri was saying, people don't feel genuinely included in the organization they're not going to feel at home and that's not going to work the second seed to plant is that we are in the hard yards now there's been a real rush of momentum and process and people appointed into senior roles responsible for de and i and now they're feeling quite frustrated quite understandably and i think this is the time where you just have to kind of stay at it and put in the hard yards. 
And the third seed to plant, and this is really inspiring to me, is that large organisations are real agents of social change. And there's a real moment of opportunity for us to create a better world through work. I hope you've enjoyed today's programme. And if you have, please subscribe and follow us and like us. And I'll see you next time.